Welcome back to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Darren King. We're glad that you've joined us wherever you are. It's been an interesting few days, Darren. Uh, the weather is kind of teetering between really cold and, and actually really nice. Uh, there's a crescent moon tonight. It's actually very beautiful. And just this week, I, I chopped a little firewood, which I haven't done in years. Uh, in honor of that, I'm wearing a flannel shirt. For those of you who can't see, uh, I'm wearing a flannel shirt. I tried to look a little wood chopping this week, which was fun, a good exercise, nice to be outside. Uh, it's a time of year that I really enjoy. And uh, even though it's getting colder, it's, um, you know, it's it's just a period of time that makes me very happy, uh, even though there's there's all this change happening and we kind of slow down a little bit and things are dark. One thing I don't like is how dark it is. Uh, is you know, when it's like 430, it's already getting dark. But uh, it's a season that I enjoy. And Darren, it was great to see you recently uh, where we got, got a chance to meet up with uh, you and DJ. That was really fun getting together and, and kind of chatting over pizza. Uh you know, it reminded me of, of things that we talk about all the time, and that's just the the power of getting together in person and and sharing conversations and sharing space, physical space, uh, with another person. How that really does uh, elevate the conversation, uh, you know, and change change the dialogue. So, so how have you been, and how are you feeling at this time of the year, and uh, what what have you been paying attention to recently? Well, like you, I love the changes of the seasons. I've lived in a few different climates in my life moved around a lot. And I actually definitely prefer being in a place that has all four seasons. I prefer them to not be too extreme, which is really great about where we live. We're in the mountains, but they're not very high mountains compared to the West. And we're far enough South that the combination of a little bit of elevation, a couple thousand feet of elevation, while being this far South means that summers are pretty mild, but really nice. Winters, we get hints of snow, but nothing too crazy. So I absolutely love that. Definitely, it's interesting looking outside in the middle of this forest and seeing so many leaves coming down constantly, basically a parade of leaves mm-hmm. this time of year. And again, like we talked about in the last podcast, it does make you think about change and transformation and not assuming things are going to always be the same. Just because things have played out a certain way so far doesn't mean they always will. I think that's one of the things that our society or our civilization is is prejudiced by is that this assumption that things have been this way for so long that they just can't change. Mm-hmm. But even for people like you and I, who haven't lived that long, we've lived a few decades enough to see that some things are different than they were when we were kids. And in some ways, we live in quite a different world than when we were kids. So it's good to be prepared for change. From a kind of Zen perspective, change is the only constant in some ways. Mm-hmm. And just to embrace that. So yeah, that's kind of what I've been paying attention to is great seeing you and DJ as well. And in terms of what's going on in the UFO phenomenon topic, there's not a shortage of things to talk about this time. Definitely. Well, let's get that started. Uh, I want to start with one of the ones that has gotten a lot of uh, attention because it's been had mixed reception. And this is the Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp uh, anecdote and, and release of uh, the fuzzy sort of dome UAP image. Uh, this came from... Uh, a purported hostile encounter with a drone in December of 2021 over Syria. This drone was engaged by uh, the Royal Air Force in the first air-to-air firing since the Falkland Wars. It's been a pretty long time since that had occurred. Uh, that's that's quite interesting. Uh, and and they they not only released that super blurry pixelated image, but they also reminded everybody that that 
they're hearing of an increase in activity globally uh, in these kinds of encounters. And we, we've heard that before. Uh, but, so there are lots of facets to this particular story. Uh, you know, I, after seeing the image, I mean, I, I, to be honest with everybody, the, the images and the videos that I see now, I just almost don't even look, look at them because it, it's, it's, it's not worth my energy trying to uh, spend time wondering, is this, uh, you know, what does it actually look like? What is it actually doing? Is this a real video? Is it something CGI? Uh, I'm less interested in, in paying attention to that because to me, they're, they're more important topics at hand. Uh, but then you had folks that were took then this is, I love this though. They took the pixelated image and they tried to overlay on top of it, uh, an interpretation of what that might look like. And then folks kind of started sharing the, the interpretive, uh, uh recreation rather than the image itself. So a, a very interesting story in, in, in the sense that studying what happens when this kind of content gets released into a community of interest and then where it goes and, and what's the reaction there. For sure. And this actually ties in with what we're going to talk about in the second part of the conversation, because even Diana Pasalka has mentioned this before, that as a society, what we don't recognize sometimes is that our collective memory and our individual memory is kind of put together with actual events as well as fictional events. So we all grew up with science fiction, Star Wars, Star Trek, Independence Day, all these kinds of movies, right? What we don't realize is that to our minds, there isn't necessarily this distinguishing between what is truth and what is fiction. So in that case, this happens in this case you're talking about here because the image released by George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell was extremely pixelated. You really have to strain. It's almost like a Rorschach test, right? <laughs> Trying to figure out what it actually was. Mm -hmm. And yet some artists in our community did a great job of saying, well, this is how, what I see there. And a couple different versions of that that starts being passed around and then people subtly forget that actually that's the interpretation going in a certain direction based on what you could actually tell for sure based on the pixelization. And then people start thinking in their mind's eye that this is what was actually seen, but we don't know that. And this plays into, again, Diana's point about fictional movies and how that becomes part of our collective memory. There's even the question around, we may be accessing a collective unconscious, kind of a Jungian collective unconscious or even if you've never seen Star Wars, and I do know a few people that fit that bill, you're still able to draw from that because it's sort of in the soil of collective consciousness. So this is something to think about today, not just this specific case with Knapp and Corbell, but we're going to get into this in general, just how these matters create some strange occurrences in terms of how we think about data and what really is data and what is more like an interpretation or a fiction in our history. Mm. Well, I want to ask you a pointed question about it. Do, do you feel like this kind of release is helpful or hurtful to the overall cause of, of moving this conversation forward and bringing it more into the mainstream? Does it fall? I mean, in my opinion, it almost falls in the bucket of kind of the same old, same old stuff that we've seen with UFO releases of the past. And because it's so same old e people just easily can write it off as like, here, you know, here's another blurry, you know, Maybe it's a it's a bird image, and I don't have to pay that much attention to it. So, is this a is this good for the conversation, or is it bad? It's a good question, and I kind of land on it being not that great for the conversation, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it's really not a very high quality image. I think George and Jeremy kind of see part of their role as releasing it to the public and hoping that somebody else will dig up some additional information to corroborate it or something. But to the skeptics, it ends up just being fuel for the fire because they can just point to yet another 
ridiculously blurry image in some ways. And this just shows how gullible the UFO community is. The other point I'd make that I made a tweet about this actually is that, you know, in this day and age, it's not just blurry images we have to worry about. It's crystal clear images hmm. because of AI and CGI. So we're now in a phase where even since we started this podcast, the explosion of AI generated art and illustrations has been so remarkable. Almost every week, there's like a new engine coming out that can produce these kinds of things. And because of that, you kind of have it both ways. Because on the one hand, you release like the Nap and Corbell image and people say, sure enough, here goes the UFO community with a totally pixelated image. That could be my grandma in a stroller for all I know. And yet on the other hand, if they release really crystal clear image, they'll say AI, CGI. And that's a valid point. But in the same way, we have to be cautious as a community to not either get too enamored with a certain blurry image that gets recreated as an interpretation from an artist, or even if we had a crystal clear image, we don't know whether that was CGI or AI or it was originally an image that was enhanced. Just before we got on the air, I was watching some footage about this kind of cylindrical white thing that's been spotted in numerous neighborhoods around America. I mean, it occurred to me it could be a Frisbee for all I know. It could be a digitally altered image. I don't know what it is. And because there's a bit of blurring and you can't tell distance and that kind of thing, it could even be a bug. All that is to say, I think in this day and age, there's going to be this race that happens between an image that gets generated and then software that tries to detect whether or not it's been generated or altered. Remember Tom DeLong and TTSA talked about technology they had several years ago that was able to comb through data and determine if something was legitimate or not. We're going to need that kind of thing. I've heard that, for instance, with ChatGPT, you've got many, many students now getting it to write essays for them. Mm -hmm. There's also been models trained to recognize really quickly when an essay has been written by ChatGPT. So you kind of have that race going on, right? The technological race. That's kind of where we're at. But as I said in that tweet or that post, we really are beyond being able to trust the human eye at this point. Mm, absolutely. All right. I want to put a pin on something that you said there, and that's this notion of resolving what the object is based on what we think it might be. So I want, to, I want to come back to that because the next topic that I want to get into is the fact that we didn't have a SCIF meeting that was nor that was going to be scheduled. I think it was originally scheduled for today. Uh, it, so it got canceled because not for any sort of conspiratorial reasons that you know we might want to jump to, but mainly just because lawmakers wanted to, they passed a continuing resolution. They funded the government through uh, January and February, depending on which parts of the government you're looking at, and they wanted to get home for their Thanksgiving holiday break. Uh, you know. I, they live in a little bit of a different world than the rest of us who, who work. You know, they can just sort of take off, I guess, and not not come back. Uh, but that SCIF hearing that there was a lot of excitement about, just like the last one, uh, has now been postponed to December 7th. So we're pushing that down uh, or back a couple of weeks. Um, you know, to me, it's it's not much of a story, kind of a, of a not, not, nothing burger there. And I really am not expecting too much to come out of uh, that a particular SCIF meeting anyway. Um Maybe a little bit more than the last one because they're they were so you know up frustrated by the last one. But you know anything that comes to mind for you, Darren, from from that uh, that change of plan? Well, you already hinted at it there, and that's just that this potentially being about civilization changing revelations, right? Revelations that change our very understanding of who we are, where we come from, what's about to happen. Are we alone? And yet people go, that sounds great, but Thanksgiving's coming up. Got a jet home. 
Let's pick that up after the recess. Just again, speaks to kind of the farcical nature of this entire enterprise, because on the one hand, like we talked about in a previous episode at the Grush hearing, you did get this sense that lawmakers were a little bit like kids again, excited about the possibility of what this might mean and beginning to dream and imagine and be have an open-ended approach to reality and see it with wonder rather than with trepidation. But we're now quickly back into the typical political cycle and even something as groundbreaking as this potentially still falls prey to the recess calendar, basically. So that's that's the main thing I draw from it. Like you, I think this is going to be just edging forward through these skiff kind of processes because we're still going to have issues with what is classified, who's been cleared to hear that classified information. Even if you have clearances, have you been read in, read out? You and DJ and I talked about that when we got together because you can still have clearances, but if you've been read out of a program, then that creates issues too. And so there's numerous ways that basically the insiders of the DOD can prevent information from being disclosed. And I think the average person in the public just gets overwhelmed with how many layers there are, need to knows and NDAs and read in, read out, classifications, all these kind of things come into it. So I think it's going to be a while. The main point, again, I draw from it is because there hasn't been feet put to the fire by the media, by journalism, then this game keeps getting played. And it gets played kind of at a snail's pace in some ways. We can talk about the Schumer legislation in a bit. But this part, anyway, feels like it's happening in a snail's pace because there's really no pressure being brought to bear from the aspect of our society that is necessary for any functioning democracy. Even the founding fathers would say that in terms of having a media that basically holds politicians to account, holds the DOD to account. Just today, I saw it posted that they failed another audit. How does this happen? How is this okay? Are we allowed to do this when the IRS comes and looks at our taxes and no, absolutely not. You have to account for it. So it's just really bizarre, and it just speaks to where we are as a society right now. Yep, 100%. All right. Well, the next one we're going to spend more time on, that's this uh, Hayden Symposium that happened just yesterday with Dr. Shankar Patrick. Uh, that was a really interesting uh, you know, sort of talk, chat with, with Sean as he's sort of rounding, uh, winding down his time as the director of Aero. He seemed pretty relaxed to me. I was kind of had that like uh, you know, the, the senioritis vibe, you know, like I already know I'm on my way out. So I just kind of talk and be very comfortable with what I want to say. Uh, his delivery, as you and I talked about before we went on the air, is extremely uh, dry in a sort of academic, almost uh, boring to a fault, uh, you know, very scientific, uh, you know, kind of si- some signaling there with the way that he speaks and the language that, that, that he uses. Uh, but there were a lot of things that came out of that conversation that I think were, were quite interesting, uh, none, of, none of which to me were all that surprising. Um, but I, I wonder if we could touch on some of those aspects. So, you know, one that, that jumped out, and I'm not going to take these in any particular order, but one that jumped out to me was this question about the, the term non-human intelligence. Um, and, and Kirkpatrick directly addressed that. He said, uh, well, I know that, that that term is being used in this uh, proposed legislation, that legislation hasn't passed. And I don't, I don't want to really comment on, on legislative terms that aren't yet you know, passed into law. So, I, we're, so barring that, whatever that might be, we're just going to stick to this extraterrestrial hypothesis. And they even used the word alien at one point in the conversation too. So really, again, kind of constraining the conversation around just this ET idea. Uh, and they spent a lot of time, quite frankly, in the conversation talking about 
the extraterrestrial hypothesis, what it would be and how we would know what it is or what it's not. All interesting, fascinating parts of the conversation, giving you a little bit of an insight to how he thinks about these things. And if not, maybe Sean Kirkpatrick himself, but how how this institutional apparatus thinks about the, the these things. And I think that's an important point to make is that we have these structures that that are designed to see reality in certain ways, and they're designed to analyze things in certain ways. And if you're not doing them from a from a kind of a, an approved checklist perspective, then they don't even fall within your framework of observation. Uh, and that, that 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 point comes back a number of times in the conversation that we saw take place last night. But Darren, what, what did you think about that particular aspect of it, and any other points that, that jumped out to you? Yeah, it'd be good for us to go back and forth a little bit about his presentation because there is numerous interesting points about it. But yeah, to your point there about how he responded to the question about NHI and how the Schumer legislation uses that term, whereas he and his colleagues have used the term extraterrestrial. Basically, he punted, right? He said, well, that's just proposed legislation, so it wouldn't be appropriate, basically, is what he kind of was saying. I almost chided the person for asking. He almost get that kind of superior tone a lot. Like I definitely picked that up. And we've discussed before neuro-linguistic programming, the way people use certain words phrased in a certain way with certain body language to signal, like you say, and to control the conversation. And it was a bit frustrating, again, how much he was able to do that and how much he gets away with it, which again goes to what I was just speaking about, which is a lack of the press coming forward and really asking tough questions and staying at it. We think about the Nixon affair. We think about the Pentagon Papers, these different things that have happened historically where really it took journalists who are willing to step into the ring and really go nine rounds on this kind of thing to really get to the truth. That doesn't seem to be the case with this. I would say the one common element of all of our shows ever since the Grush Revelations is that this really has not been taken up in the mainstream. You see once in a while the anomaly of a important, significant article that's taking this seriously, like there was one today in Politico, but generally just basically absent. But on that particular matter, like I said in our last episode, he basically got by with a technicality rather than speaking to the spirit of the question. The spirit of the question was regardless of whether or not that's been passed or not, let's be honest, this is Chuck Schumer proposing legislation, the Senate Majority Leader, a veteran lawmaker, one of the most powerful people in government, you can't just dismiss it by saying, well, it hasn't been you know, passed into law yet. And he shouldn't be allowed to let that happen. That's the part that's frustrating about it. But that's basically what he did. He punted and said, well, because it's not actually law yet, I'm not going to address it specifically. And furthermore, he went on to talk later about basically they match against certain patterns. When they look at data, they match it to certain patterns and try to determine does it fit A, B, C. Now, he admitted basically that there hasn't been a peer-reviewed, agreed-upon pattern put forward to describe what would match ET, what would match extraterrestrial. So all this time, historically, when he's been saying there's no evidence of something extraterrestrial, that's basically a nothing burger. It's of no substance at all to say such a thing because he's basically admitting here they have no pattern to match it against. So that's always going to come back as a zero or a false in a Boolean sense from a programmer's point of view. So this, again, if you had press involved or willing to put two and two together, they would say, wait a second, if that's the case, and basically all these times prior to now when you've said there's no evidence for extraterrestrial, basically you weren't saying anything of substance because 
there was nothing in your pattern matching that could have fit that. So again, that just gets passed by and people don't really put it together. And he now is about to go off into the sunset. And as we talked about last time, sure enough, Oak Ridge National Laboratory run by Battelle on behalf of the Department of Energy, that's where he's going. It's so preposterous. Again, like if I think about this, I wouldn't write a script that was this obvious because it just, it's too easy. It just doesn't seem realistic. And how it isn't, again, questioned why the person who's supposedly looking into some of these legacy programs allegedly involving contractors and secret keeping held under legislation inappropriately by the Department of Energy, and these are the very people you could say probably he's in bed with now and about to go and accept a position. It's kind of like when we hear about lawmakers, Congress people retiring and then going and working as lobbyists because they know how the system works. And so the entire thing is just this this cyclical kind of enterprise that only works for the people on the inside, basically. So it kind of makes a mockery of trying to do justice on behalf of the American people to really get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a good bit of conversation devoted to calibration of the sensors and you know, relying on these hypotheses, taking a lot of data of known objects and recalibrating the sensors of these platforms that are out in areas of operation so that the sensors will will properly calibrate to properly resolve objects to these known types of objects. So I said I wanted to put a pin in that earlier, and I just want to come back to that. So it's it's, it's a bit of an odd way of approaching anomalous things. Like I, on the one hand, I understand that. So you can say, uh, you know, we're picking up a lot of noise in our sensors, and we've done a great deal of analysis on that type of noise, and we've determined that what 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 it really means when the when the computer is is calculating all these things is it it should it resolves to this, right? So and I hope that that some of the work that is being done is is that precisely. But if if in other times it's more of a glossing over kind of resolving, you know, so it's sort of saying, well, it performs a little bit like a balloon object, maybe not in totality, but in partiality, therefore it's a balloon. So you can see the, di- the, di- the difference there is important because it may not really be a balloon. It may behave like a balloon in some respects, but may in actuality not be a balloon. And so... It's a little bit frustrating. Uh, it also speaks to the, the tremendous challenge that we have of trying to understand what these objects are. The air space is getting more and more cluttered with many different kinds of things, many different operating platforms. Uh, you know, but just to say, like, well, we've kind of recalibrated all of our sensors, and now it's like putting on the rose-colored glasses, right? Now I only see the world, and everything that I see is rose-colored. I don't see any di- differentiation. That's now the way the world looks. So I hope that we're going to still leave some space, uh, you know, in these platforms for gathering all kinds of data in an attempt to better resolve it outside of the the known parameters. Uh, you know, also it's a little bit preposterous to me to kind of make a statement akin to saying that, uh, well, if we can just get academic people together to hypothesize on what extraterrestrial technology will be. I mean, he essentially said this, we would extrapolate that it's it's sort of extended technology from what our known physics can do. And he's like, some people say, oh, it's not behaving according to the laws of physics, but they just don't have a good enough understanding of theoretical physics. And if we get our theoreticians together, they can postulate what things could do 
in, in theoretical physics space. And if they can do that, and then if that's what we see, then that, that's extraterrestrial. There's a lot of interesting leaps in logic that I don't think are necessarily grounded in, in, in truth. There's, just, there's a tremendous amount of assumption baked into the entire uh, exercise there. For sure. And basically what it comes down to is, say if the one box you know you don't want to land in, which is non-human intelligence or alien or extraterrestrial, then you can set up numerous other boxes. And if even it approximates fitting that description, then you go, sure now that goes in box B, that goes in box C. So like you say, not only does it come down to whether there's something in human understanding of physics that kind of fits and they go, well, that that's close enough. But even if there's patents existing that speak to the possibility of something that kind of fits what is described, then they kind of assume that that's probably an example of that. So basically you're setting a really, really high bar, in other words, for what would count as extraterrestrial. And again, because the whole question all along has been how sincere, how genuine, how well-meaning are they being in this in this entire enterprise? Has Arrow been set up just blatantly as a dog and pony show that basically it's like Project Blue Book all over again? They may be gathering information to pass on to certain agencies on the inside, but to the public, they basically are making it look like this really thorough scientific enterprise that's objective when in actuality it's anything but. That certainly seems to be the case when I look at it. It seems to be that they're stacking the deck in such a way as to never have to land in that one box. And basically that's what he blatantly said. Again, when you say there's no pattern yet to match against ET, then that's never going to come up and your deck of cards, you flip over a card, it's never going to be that particular one because you don't have that in your template. So again, it just speaks to what's going on here. Another thing that you and I talked about before we went on the air was how he kind of has this talk down to superior tone when he speaks about the attacks that he and his colleagues are subject to from the UFO community. Now, on the one hand, absolutely that's not appropriate. I know that this has been a bee under your bonnet before, and it's absolutely true that it's not appropriate, even if you're trying to fight for truth, to harass people, to make threats, those kinds of things. That's not what we want to do. There are people who are doing that. The challenge is when he gets up before a podium and he sort of shames those people and also uses that as a reason to not talk about some of the data and some of the details, the same way that NASA did, right? We talked about that in our last episode or the one before, where basically... Bill Nelson wasn't willing to talk about certain names because of the threats that have been made and the harassment that had come from the UFO community. Now, as you and I talked about, just because that's the most vocal element doesn't mean it's the majority. And the truth is that's the case for our society as well. We see a lot of jargoning around extreme versions of politics. That's actually what most people are not, right? Most people are kind of purple. Most people are kind of in the middle. But because we have a two-party system effectively, what it ends up doing is driving to the extremes. So this goes on in our society and also goes on in terms of how this political speech comes in and how he kind of uses, again, NLP to wiggle out of answering the question honestly, because basically he makes it sound like he's a victim. That's really the way he, he played that out, that he and his colleagues are victims. And again, we're not justifying that behavior. No one should harass people. But to speak to that, but not give any voice to the majority of people who are well-meaning, kind people who just really are curious and want to know what's going on here, is to misinform as to the nature of the conversation, basically, I think what goes on. 
And even one of the guys on stage, sort of almost like on perfect cue said, oh, what are they thinking that you should have called with this answer? And again, it made it look like he was the victim and, and he'd been basically oppressed or something. So I want people to pay attention when those kind of things happen, because all of that is very strategic, I would suggest, that there's a lot of NLP that goes into this. And again, you come away asking yourself the question, is this Project Blue Book all over again, especially in light of where he's ended up going? Mm, yes. Well, you know, there is a delicate, uh, I think, balance here because um, we, we may learn that whatever our assumptions are, we have many assumptions that may be false, right? So, uh, but the but the tricky aspect of this is that, and this is just I think a, a, the practical reality, is the state has the monopoly on the truth at the moment, and you know he even talks about this within the you know constraints of his own office, right? So he talks about this with re reference to these SAPs, and he used the uh, you know the funny code name Flying Wombat, and he would say you know well. Somebody comes to me and says they know about Project Flying Wombat, and I and I, I take that project name and I take it to the uh, respective agency where supposedly that, that project is housed. And if that agency comes back to him and to his office and says, "Yeah, we we don't have anything on Project Wombat; that doesn't exist," he says, "Well, you know, okay, great, case closed, right?" So the 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 arbiter of truth in that exchange is the state, is that agency who has the power to definitively put a period on that question. There is no Project Wombat, no matter what this individual says, who, yes, we did actually employ them for a while, and yes, they did work in a project, but they really didn't work in Project Wombat. They worked in something else, and they just had it mistaken. Again, there's no Project Wombat, right? So there's not, there's, these aren't the droids you're looking for. There's nothing to see here. So that that's the reality of the situation that we're working in. And you know, I have to confess, it's it's a challenging situation. Because we know from just looking at history that, that states aren't always truthful, right? That, that, that to me, is a, a pretty well-established fact, that, that states do hide things, they, they maintain secrets, and they, they portray a certain narrative to the population that they want the population to, to believe, that benefits the interest of the state. And oftentimes, these things are what we would kind of consider to be white lies or you know, convenient narratives. But but they're not the actual truth, and so we're, to me the, the the real struggle, the challenge is from from an enthusiast, the person has interest in this is, you know, what information from the state is going to satisfy the curiosity that we have as the as the community of interest, you know, how how are we going to relate with that that interplay, a degree or lack of degree of transparency that the state may offer. Um, how much is information that we are going to accept? You know, what if they come come out with a bunch of information? They say, "Here's what we know," and we're being more transparent with you. I have a feeling a lot of us in the community are going to say, "Yeah, that's great," but you're not being you're still not being transparent enough. How much is enough, and what what are we willing to hear? These are things that I wrestle with personally because I think we have to get comfortable with the notion that some of our ideas, some of our own sacred cows, may in fact not be true. And at some point, we kind of have to accept whatever is going to come out of the, the, the process and come to peace with that, even if we may not like what we hear. Indeed, and it comes down to several different points I would make in reference to that. Number one, we've discussed before how there's a difference between what the truth entails, even if that's already a partial truth only seen through human perception, but what the truth entails versus what a civilization can metabolize at any given point. Those are two very different sets of information, even in terms of the questions that are allowed to be asked. Even if it is an open enterprise, 
just inherent bias in human beings. We're going to talk later on about map making and how maps take precedence over territory so often and how quickly we embrace maps rather than living in the unknown of the territory itself. There's that. And there's also this question around what will happen from something like the arrow context. But again, what I think we're also seeing is some movements, even from within, that really want to see this move forward, others that don't. And so often with this entire community, what I see as one of the most challenging aspects is the collapsing of multiple data sets into one, and then people try to make sense of that barrage of data, and then get surprised when it seems to not adhere to a certain pattern. And I would say it's because they're actually collapsing distinct data sets into one to try to come up with simpler answers, which is what we like to do with our brains. Mm -hmm. I bring that up because Arrow seems to be on a very different trajectory than the Schumer legislation. That's because not just how it's played out, but the Schumer legislation did the exact opposite of what Arrow did. Arrow tried to tame this. Arrow began with the null hypothesis. Arrow set up parameters that made it almost impossible for the ET hypothesis to be landed on. The Schumer legislation did the very opposite. Not only did they open the possibility, but they made some strong statements about the fact that there actually had been an historic enterprise involving the recovery and the reverse engineering of UFOs. They used the term non-human intelligence, even going went as far as to define what that means. They used that term like 20 times or something. So they went so far the other direction that that in itself should catch people's attention. How can we live under one democratic government and have two different groups basically seeming to take such different approaches to this? Again, I think it speaks to how divided matters are even within basically. And again, that raises questions about who really is putting Arrow forward as supposedly this enterprise to get to the truth, which gets to something I posted or tweeted today. I said, quote, with the Schumer disclosure legislation, we see an apparently fast-tracked runway being cleared for public disclosure around UFOs. Simultaneously, we see incidents involving engagements with UAP happening globally and with increased frequency. Coincidence? Unquote. Because I was thinking about that in light of what Corbell and Knapp said in their last podcast, where basically, again, Jeremy said, there's increased engagement happening globally. And some people pointed out to me that perhaps there's just been increased reporting because there actually has been this shift, right? Where now pilots are being told, please do report on this. Whereas before they were basically, the writing on the wall was, if you start talking about this stuff, you're going to lose your job, your pension will be in question, you're going to go in for psychiatric evaluation, these kinds of things, right? So now apparently there's more of a open door to actually talk about these things and to report on them. So some people are suggesting perhaps we're just seeing more reporting. I don't think that's what Jeremy meant. I, I actually have taken from what I've heard, there actually is increased incidence themselves. And it's because it's not the kind of thing that some rogue F-18 pilot happened to see on the ocean and will he talk about it or not, but entire naval groups are seeing these things over an airship or something. And so when that happens, it's not a matter of who's going to talk about it. I mean, everybody's seeing it. It's on the recordings of the videos and those kinds of things. But then someone else said regarding the Schumer legislation, definitely not a coincidence, but I question whether or not if disclosure is for the public or just for Congress. And I've heard people raise this, this concern that what if this is actually just legislation to make sure Congress finally gets its hands 
on this classified material, material that was inappropriately kept out of congressional oversight. That's a fair point, and I, I can see how people get there. There's no guarantee. There's enough of a, a leeway, wiggle room, that Congress could get the information they need and still choose to really lock things down. Because what you spoke to earlier about being judge, jury, and executioner, they can basically, even though it sounds quite open-ended and for the sake of public disclosure, they could come back and say, well, in this case, we actually do think that this is a national security issue. We're going to lock it down again. What I say to that, though, is this. I've wondered the same thing at times. That said, the specificity of the language is in itself, in my mind, a form of public disclosure. There's really no need for it to be that specific unless it's being intended in said manner, unquote. And there I was speaking about what I said earlier about non-human intelligence being mentioned 20 times, how that's even defined, right? So you can't really wiggle out of it. I've heard people like Neil deGrasse Tyson say, well, you know, monkeys and orangutans are non-human intelligence. But clearly here it's talking about in context, something that we would consider alien. And really what you could argue here, I would argue, is the fact that they've chosen this term NHI rather than alien or extraterrestrial is to begin to prep the American public and the world public for the notion that this is not as simple as the extraterrestrial hypothesis would suggest which goes back to the exact same conclusion that Jacques Vallée and J. Allen Hynek came to in the 70s. So to me, this looks like a runway preparing for a very, very interesting 2024. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's not forget, it says coordinated disclosure campaign uh, somewhere in that in that legislative language. Uh, you know, you're setting up a panel of nine individuals that are going to review this material. I mean, that's a lot of uh, specific things to propose to do for something that's not actually there. It's a bit of a weird, you know, what way to, to do that. Um, so I agree with you completely. It is interesting to watch these two efforts running in a little bit parallel. One coming from uh, the elected, the, the elected officials. The other one coming from the defense and uh, apparatus. Uh, you know, I think that that really kind of that dichotomy speaks enough for itself. There, um, you know, speaking of things that are a little bit anomalous and strange and maybe don't fall within the realm of objects that can be resolved. You know, we had an interesting uh, interview released from Jesse Michaels with your friend, Dr. Mike Masters, our, our friend, Dr. Mike Masters. Uh, and I thought that was quite an interesting interview and exchange with him. He was very, I think, brave and, and candid in his in his account of, of having experience with non-human intelligence in the flesh, so to speak. Uh, non-conventionally human intelligence. That's right, non-conventionally human intelligence. And uh, you know, he recounted that you know he, in his sort of heart and his mind, uh, he kind of kept this to himself that he was thinking about stepping away from the UFO conversation. Uh, he was getting, uh, you know, I think fatigued from that. We all feel that from time to time, and just wanted to kind of move on to other things. And then he was approached by a pair. I think he says that they refer to themselves as they or we. Uh, that it said, no, you cannot do that. You have to stay doing this. Uh, they he, they asked him, he said, they were polite to a fault. Uh, they asked him if he would be willing to receive some further information, uh, only if he was willing to take it. He said he, that he was, that he received what we would call basically a download from them. They would check in that he was receiving that information, but they told him that whatever they gave him, that it would not be uh, sort of for forefront in his consciousness until the appropriate time. So he, he 
recalcity receives something, but he kind of locked away, can't access that, and that he'll see it sometime later. So uh, that was, I don't know, Darren, to me, I knew a little bit about this uh, to a certain degree, but but it was kind of crazy to hear the, the entire story uh, you know, in, in the public space now. Indeed. And it was interesting for me too, because I don't think Mike would mind me saying that he and I spoke about his experience last year sometime. And we partly talked about it because we've had some similar experiences and talking about it helps you sort of make sense of what happened. And when he even talks about the uploads, you could say, or downloads, I guess, depending on your perspective, that happened, we had a very similar experience. And I actually spoke about an experience I've had in the interview I did with Jay on Project Unity. It was very similar where I can tell information has gone in and then it drops in the relevant information as I need it, as I sort of walk through the world. And it just seems to almost like have this cue. This is when Darren needs this is going to drop in now. It's going to drop in now. And so I even spoke to Mike after the interview with Jesse or after that aired, and he's still waiting for that information to drop in. So it's there. You can even feel a certain kind of physical sensation around that information being there, but it not being available yet. Absolutely, it's very interesting, not the least of which is because when it comes to why Mike came out and spoke about this experience, it's because there is this sense from them that not only is it okay for him to speak about it, but they actually want him to. So again, this speaks to what we've been discussing on this podcast for quite a few episodes now, which is what is going on in our reality right now? What is about to come to pass that some of these different events foretell? So this is very, very interesting. And absolutely, I think that conversation, not in an academic circle, but actually on a publicly available sort of for the masses show like Jesse Michael's show, helps bring the future human hypothesis front and center and really gives a chance for people to wrestle with what this means. So very, very interesting. And of course, also what's interesting is seeing the different reactions. I'm always surprised, but I shouldn't be, how many in the UFO community would like to collapse everything into their favorite hypothesis. So some people that are not really happy with the future human hypothesis are trying to poke holes at it, but it's a pretty superficial attempt to do so. Mike's addressed many of those concerns or holes in the argument. It's a pretty compelling argument. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right, but it's certainly compelling. And it fits with a lot of the data really, really well. So at the very least, it has to be taken as a leading contender or one of the leading contenders to make sense of a mix the, the plurality of what the phenomenon is. But absolutely was a really interesting moment for me to see him speaking publicly about something that I had heard about last year. Definitely. And it adds to that. It's another data point that adds to this momentum building and, and signaling in our in our broader culture of individuals willing to have this conversation more publicly in a serious way, uh, reducing the snicker factor. Uh, obviously, the knee-jerk response to something that I like what he shared, I think for many people is, I, I can't, you know, this is ridiculous. I can't believe he's saying this. This guy should lose his academic tenure or whatever he might have because uh, he doesn't belong on the faculty saying these outlandish things. But at the same time, if you're a person who's had an experience like this, and let's say you're a professional person, you know, you're going about your professional career and you don't want to talk about it, you're afraid of what that might mean. Here's someone who's doing it, that they, they, they're leading the way, that might give you the encouragement to follow suit. And and like I've always said, as that happens, it's like a, you know, it's like a snowball rolling dad downhill. It's going to going to increase mass and size as more people say, Oh, I'm comfortable. You know, I 
I'm, you gave me the courage to do to do what I needed to do and come forward. And then before we know it, we've got a tsunami, a giant snowball, you know, rolling downhill, uh, really changing the, the 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 conversation in a dramatic way. There, um, speaking along those lines, right? We've got uh, the Soul Conference, which is happening tomorrow. Uh, so uh, a lot of uh, academics will be there. Um, you know, a lot of big names in, in the conversation lately will be there speaking. I uh, have no doubt there will be some interesting uh, tidbits of information that come out of the conference. Uh, I'm particularly interested in, in what we'll hear from Charles McCullough, uh, you know, because of his representation of David Grush and, and maybe others that we've heard he may be representing uh, similarly uh, in the whistleblower realm. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious what will come out of that. But I have no doubt that one you know, byproduct of this conference, of this uh, uh, this gathering, will be more individuals just like my masters who are willing to come forward and share the things that they've experienced in their own lives. Well, I'd like to link those two events or those two experiences, actually, people going and taking in a conference like the Soul Conference at Stanford University, so not exactly a, a secondary unknown place. But then what happened with Mike Masters coming out and giving this testimony as an academic? And I think back to what happened when when John Mack, basically, even though he had tenure and was very well recognized and respected amongst his colleagues and his peers, what he was saying was so outlandish in their mind. They basically literally tried to make the argument that he was not acting in the best interest of his patients, his clients. He was basically doing harm when he had sworn to not do so. And they tried to basically remove him from his teaching position and whatnot because of that. Once it actually went to a kind of tribunal of sorts, it was made very clear very quickly that this was basically a witch hunt of the real sort, not the other kinds you kind of hear about these days, where basically there was nothing there and that he was actually doing the best he could to be honest, open-minded, follow the data, listen to people, don't assume they're insane just because they're saying things that are unconventional. Again, this goes to our maps again, the inadequacy of our maps our willingness to open up our maps again, reconsider. Now, what's interesting in today's day and age is that thankfully, Mike is not going to have to go through that same sort of process where suddenly his tenure is called into question at the university he speaks at, right? This is a this is a big move. This is a, this is progress. And again, the Soul Conference speaks to that. But one last piece I'd like to bring to everyone's attention about what Mike spoke about. He kind of hinted at it just in case people didn't catch it because he and I have spoken about it, then is that it's not just what happened to him recently in terms of an encounter with beings that looked human, but furthermore, by the way, there's sometimes even where they spoke basically in unison. So not only did they say that they think of themselves as we and they, a collective kind of hive mind, which is completely fits with my experiences that I've had and downloads I've had, but furthermore, they literally, two people would speak in unison sometimes. So it's almost like they're calling from a single single mind kind of thing or a hive mind. But beyond that, he basically spoke about, and I've hinted at this very thing. If people go back and listen to previous podcasts, I've hinted at this. I wonder why it is that Mike Masters went into the field he went into. Isn't that a coincidence? And I was kind of being coy there because I didn't think it was. Because even going back to as an eight-year-old or whatever he was, when he saw his dad's copy of Communion, the Whitley Strieber book, with a gray or something like a gray on the front cover, he immediately had the thought that being must somehow be biologically related to a modern human being. It's not the usual kind of thing that an eight-year-old would think. In fact, I would make the argument that 
because we have such rigid map making again, maps that we refer to, because it doesn't look exactly like a modern human, what falls within that, most people assume that's alien actually. Not many people have made that connection that that actually has so many common traits that it's more likely to be connected to us than not. So what he's basically saying is, and what I basically concluded a year ago, was that that thought was inserted into his mind. Now, what's really interesting here is he makes the point, and I think this is going to be shocking to many, many, many people, because I think it speaks to the degree to which other beings, other consciousnesses, other intelligences can interact with our intelligence and our consciousness. And we can't trust certain things like, well, it was an idea in my head, so it must be mine. We can't even trust that I heard that inner dialogue in my own voice, because that's what Mike basically says, is he hears these dialogues going on in his own inner voice, in his mind, and he assumes it's him. But one thing that happened in the encounter he had with them is that they knew about a conversation he'd had with himself, never spoken out loud to anyone. So again, this speaks to what I talk about in the class, how basically consciousness is porous and there are no secrets across space and time. So even though this was a thought in his own mind, he thought that was private and intimate to only him. He hadn't even told his wife and yet they knew about it and they responded based on that one interior dialogue he had. So this just speaks to the complexity here in terms of how these kinds of intelligences could architect certain sociological outcomes, right? You think about Jacques Vallée and the control system hypothesis. That's one thing on a collective level, but if you can go in and actually insert ideas, we think about the movie Inception, the inception of an idea that we can't distinguish from our own thinking unless we get really good at doing that by really, really paying attention to the subtleties of energy, which is what I like to get into in the class. So again, I think that's really remarkable and it just shows how far we have to go yet. So we think about the arrow kind of investigation. We think about the Schumer legislation beginning to talk about non-human intelligence. But what's interesting here is we have non-conventionally human intelligence and we have it interacting with us in ways that no matter what kind of scientific tribunal you do set up and you set up certain boxes and say, is it this, is it this, is it this, it's going to transcend any of those because of the complexity we're seeing in terms of even how the porous nature of consciousness becomes central to this entire conversation. That's definitely an episode unto itself. There's a lot to unpack there. And I, I agree with you. It's an incredibly challenging concept to uh, wrap one's mind around, you know, particularly when we talk about things like agency. Uh, you know, is, is it my idea? Is it from somewhere else? Did I even have a choice in the matter? Um, but I think everybody can relate certainly to those experiences in, 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 your, in your life where a voice kind of happens. Like you, you hear you hear this inner voice and he's asking you to do something, telling you it's compelling you to do, to do something. Many times we say, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Like that's not what I want to do. But if you answer in the affirmative, you know things sometimes happen in in unexpected ways uh, as a response to to that 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 lure, that calling. I, I have certainly experienced that. So I know a certain degree what we're talking about here. Uh, but to then later categorize it as coming outside of my own. Uh, you know, sort of sphere of 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 mentation. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a real, real challenge there. And I know you'll want to get into you know, is it is it really coming outside of my mentation? You know, there's a there's a fuzzy distinction there to make. Uh, again, what, why I say this would be a great topic for a future episode. Exactly. Let me just say one more thing about that. Absolutely, what you said there is very true. That it's not a question just of in this one 
case or the in these certain unique instances that, that they can say and introduce ideas that change our way of thinking and therefore change our actions. The question is, what is the nature of our consciousness altogether? A higher self, multiple selves, guides, right? All of these different aspects that are part of different lore around our civilization come front and center again when we think about this. But just to, again, really hit this home for people, I've spoken before about Robert Hastings' experience. Now, he's a guy who spent decades going around educating the public about the UFOs and nuclear connection. UFOs were showing up at specifically nuclear weapons facilities and demonstrating they could shut down the silos if need be. And one could argue that they were basically testing to make sure they could in the event of a nuclear war. And he was basically doing this thinking all along that this was of his own initiative, his own volition. Then, only in his 50s or something, I think, he began to have memories for the first time, conscious memories of encounters with beings when he was a young kid. One I've spoken about before because it's so fascinating. One time, his entire family sitting around the kitchen table eating went into suspended animation, and he was the only one still moving. Then these beings came in. Then he has missing time. He's not sure what happened. Sits back at the table. Everybody resumes eating again. Now, it could very well be that while he was gone, they were planting the notions that one day when you become an adult, you're going to become very interested in this notion of UFOs showing up at nuclear facilities. So, of course, after this happened, only as a 50-something-year-old, he began to wonder about his entire life and the entire course of his life. And of course, I've even thought about this in light of like the real changes I've made over the last couple of years in light of downloads and experiences I've had. So it's really, really fascinating. And it makes it much more of a complex, multifaceted question around what is the nature of interpenetrating consciousnesses, not just others and us. It's a really complex question. And I think a much more interesting one as well. Right. It speaks to the nature of what and who are we? Uh, that, that's the fundamental question. Um, all right. So switching gears a little bit here uh, to the, the latter part of the show, um, I had a, a wonderful opportunity on on Sunday to interview a, a man by the name of Raymond Nader. Uh, this gentleman was brought to my attention by uh, a, a colleague of ours who's, in, who's taking your class. Um, and uh, I had never heard Raymond's story before. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you can find the interview with Raymond on my Perturbations channel on YouTube. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation because Raymond had uh, a very profound experience in the mid-1990s uh, with uh, a non-human intelligence, let's put it that way. And you know his, his entire framework of understanding that encounter was, was couched within his Christian background. He, he grew up in, a, in a, what's known as the Maronite Christian community, and that's a kind of a branch of the of Roman Catholicism that, that really took root in Lebanon and a uh, you know, very devout individual and, and looks at the world from the perspective of a devout believer in the Christian faith. And uh, you know, there are so many fascinating things that, that, that happened in that encounter, um, but I want to start with a couple, and then I want to go where we're, we're going with the, with the topic. So one is that he, he initiated contact, or at least it seems like he initiated contact by, what, what, and I had not heard this aspect of the story before I interviewed him, he laid on the ground, stared at the stars, and would basically go from star to star 
imagining a connection with those stars and, and basically shortening the distance between himself and those points of light. He would kind of do this very methodically. You think he referred to it as opening his heart. Wait, wait a second, Nathan. Are we, are we talking about Stephen Greer and CE5? I'm a bit confused here. It sure sounds like it, right? So in the, the whole time he's telling me this, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, like where have I heard this before? You know, this is so many strong parallels to, to things that I've you know, heard in the community. So he says he spends about 30 minutes doing this after he feels like that he's shortened that distance from the cosmos to himself. And here's an individual, by the way, who has a background in, in science and engineering and nuclear physics. He understands the reality of the vastness of space. But after he's done this exercise and kind of shortened and collapsed that distance between the external and the internal, he switches gears to what, what, what he describes as a devotion, as a prayer. He meditates on a particular passage of the Bible. He lights some candles. While he's doing this, the cold environment that, that he's in, he's basically at a high elevation in Lebanon, becomes warm. And then all of a sudden he's transported into a, a realm of like crystalline and you know, iridescent light where he has a, a communication with a non-human intelligence, a telepathic communication. He doesn't want to leave that that encounter. And a whole lot of things happen in that span of time that, that, that he thinks is rather quick. When he comes out of that experience, all the candles he lit are basically burned down to the ground. Hours have passed, uh, you know, where he's, he just thought he'd been there for a couple of minutes. And as he's going back to his car, he, he's feeling his arm, his sweater, and sticking to his arm. He takes off his sweater, looks at the, the upper part of his arm, and he sees third-degree burn imprints of a hand on his upper arm. And he has this validated by his spouse. He goes to a plastic surgeon, which I didn't get into in the interview, but that individual also validates that these were legitimate burns. Anyway, it's, it's a fascinating story. And I bring all that up to say, I'm not just I'm making a plug for my show, but to say that what really struck me are these strong parallels in his experience and what I have heard from experiencers of the phenomena and how our culture gives a pass in many respects to his experience versus what we hear from those who talk about having encounters with extraterrestrials, aliens, you know, light beings, et cetera, et cetera. And it reminded me just how conditioned we are to to giving a pass to the religious, uh, you know, sort of aspects in our culture that we've inherited over the millennia, over the centuries, and and they're just so much a, a part of the fabric of our world that we we really just don't question them anymore. And and that struck me very profoundly. And I've experienced that myself. You know, many people know I went to seminary, and uh, with with the intention at the time of going into the ministry of of serving in a church, or if not that, going into an academic sort of pursuit of theology. And I decided not to do that. I left the church, and maybe after 10 years of being not no longer in that community, would I go back into a church environment? And when I did that, what I discovered, Darren, as you well know, how foreign everything seemed, how alien everything seemed. You know, I, you know it all had changed for me because I'd had the 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 benefit of time and distance to, to, to kind of change my framework of understanding and see it for what it was. And then you now here I am looking at the same kinds of experiences, just using different terminology. And so, you know, it fascinates me that we, we've got this, just a part of our human culture, but we, we really have not come to the place where we're okay talking about it in the same way. 
So, Darren, I don't know what you thought about that uh, interview and experience and what I've recounted there, but for me, it was very, it was a very moving and profound exchange. It definitely was a very interesting conversation and yet another example of astounding experiences that people have that are a lot more common than I think we generally realize. It definitely speaks to the map making we talked about earlier, how some maps were kind of grandfathered in and so they don't get seen as maps, they get confused for the territory. Definitely a double standard for sure. And I know that you were cautious and diplomatic and not pushing him too much with notions that might have been foreign to him. But again, to any of us that coming from this field, even though you and I also have the crossover with religious backgrounds and studying it theologically and whatnot in academia, for us, it really struck a note that this sounds so much like an encounter with a phenomenon, which again, I have spoken before about even people like Chris Bledsoe have had encounters and physical effects that mirror very much what happened to St. Francis of Assisi. So again, the question isn't, are there some overlaps? But actually, more likely, in what way is this the same phenomenon that just being interpreted in different ways over time? But to speak to what you talked about at the beginning there in terms of the double standard, modern Western civilization has its roots in Christendom. Science has its roots in Christendom. It's only because there was this belief in an ordered world, an ordered cosmos put together by the clockmaker God that we thought we could actually study things and learn things about nature and learn to manipulate nature to our betterment because we believed it followed orderly principles because that's just the nature of God's character, basically. So because that was grandfathered in, basically, people can say all sorts of interesting things. We still swear on Bibles in front of courts of law. We you know, refer to Christian history in various aspects of Americana that many people would consider a conflict between church and state, the separation of church and state. And on top of that, basically, if you think about people who sometimes get thrown into the bucket of, you're from a cult, right? Your notions, your ideas, your belief systems, your rituals are too anomalous, therefore that's a cult. But if you think about it, Christendom and inherited Western civilization, which is a byproduct of Christendom, is in a way its own cult. But because it's the majority cult, no one sees it with those glasses is what it really comes down to. So absolutely, it's very interesting because the average person walking down the street would have no problem believing that, for instance, things like seas were parted in the past and that strange chariots of fire were running through the sky and think that somehow that's a different endeavor than UFOs, non-human intelligence, non-conventionally human intelligence, future humans going back in time, all of these notions, interdimensionals, whatever you want to call it. Again, it just gets a pass. It doesn't even get questioned because not only do we grow up with these notions, thinking that this is just the way things are, but following along the lines of my conversation with Bernardo Castrop again, speaking about how often we inherit ideas, notions about reality that we assume our ancestors have done their darndest to really determine if that was the truth or not. Often there can be various just socio-political reasons why one thing was believed over another. We even think about Christian history in terms of the councils that were held and all of a sudden one day something that was okay the day before is now heresy as of today because it was decided in the council that was the case. And then people later on, speaking of our history, I remember one time in one of my theology classes, someone said they were shocked to hear that the Catholics had a different canon than evangelicals or Protestants. 
And he wanted to ask the question, is this the word of God or not, this particular book, right? That was considered apocryphal or something for evangelicals. Just to give people some context here, what I'm saying is that certain groups of Christianity have a different canon or understood notion of what the inspired books of the Bible should be. And it differs depending on which camp you're in. And a lot of that comes down to what councils were held, which of course were held by people in the past. But when you inherit all of that, and that happened centuries and centuries ago, you assume there's really good reasons why those things exist. And sometimes there's not. And what we're pointing to here is this, this even applies perhaps most blatantly in the discrepancy between how the UFO phenomenon is treated in our culture versus how Christian history is, is considered. Absolutely. I want to talk a little about the academic approach to these experiences as well. And and we you and I both know, you know, academics in this particular field, you know, who took it who've taken an interest in the field. Um, we talked about the Seoul conference that's happening and, you know, the the gathering of academics there. Um, I'm reminded that the the academic pursuit of knowledge now in many respects, particularly with with looking at religious tradition, is uh, you know, a very sort of old enterprise. It's uh, it's it's looking at these things from the the, the standpoint of um, analyzing a map, not actually you know going out into the field and, and having the experience, right? And you and I talked about before we went on the air, and I, I I like this particular analogy. You know, so imagine that you know you are the explorer and you're going into that uncharted territory. You're literally you know crossing the streams and hiking the mountains and all this kind of thing. And you come back from that experience, this uncharted land, you're going back to where you came from, civilization. You're saying, okay, this, this was my experience. This is what I, this is the best thing I can do to recreate it. I'm going to, I'm going to create a map for you. or I'm going to talk to someone who can help me create a map of what I experienced. And let's say that map maker is very good at what they do and they create an amazing map and, and people can look at that and go, Ooh, wow, that's amazing. That, absolutely incredible. That's what you saw though. That's definitely what I saw. And, and, and what we have then, in, it's the same kind of thing in academia. So you have the creation of this beautiful map that, that, that basically convinces us it's, it was the actual experience. And then you have a, a, a lineage of map makers that come into the picture, and they're also creating maps of the same thing. Now, I'm not saying we're not sending folks out. Sometimes we correct the maps. We send people out, you know, make adjustments. This was wrong. This is a little bit better. But my point being is that we spend a lot of time really regurgitating and and recycling the material of the map as opposed to the experience. And, and th that's often where we are in many of our discussions now when it comes to what we know. You know it, we, we, we live more in the laboratory than we do in reality. And I, I think that that's something we need to be reminded of because it it, it it's so close to us, right, Darren? It's so it's so close to our skin that we 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 can't we can't really see that anymore. So so shaking us out of that experience and saying, look, no, 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 there, get into the wild, right? You know, we we've domesticated experience. We need to get back into the wild and and really experience what truly is there. And I think that's a that's a that's something that we'll have to deal with as we wrestle with how this entire enterprise unfolds, right? Because it's going to be uncomfortable. You know, you and I talked about that a little bit before we went on, that many in our community, uh, you know, sort of look at the trauma that either they've experienced or uh, they've heard others experience. And instead of saying, work through that trauma, we're saying, well, how can we make you feel better? And so that you can just operate in reality with the rest of us. Uh, we've really got to go through it 
and and that's not going to be comfortable. Absolutely, this tendency towards map making and then attachment to the map rather than the territory is everywhere in our culture. And it even goes back to our evolutionary history because one of the points that Donald Hoffman's been making for a while now is that we've confused what gets served up as icons on an interface that allows us to navigate an incredibly complex barrage of data we couldn't possibly make sense of if it was really presented to us as it is. So already our evolutionary history is such that we are the progeny that survived from ancestors who learned to look at the shortcuts and pay attention to the shortcuts and navigate by the shortcuts. So it's baked into our evolutionary history, our biology basically. And we are constantly looking for shortcuts because it's efficacious to use your word again. We can move through the world more efficiently if we know that a road is a road, it does this. I don't really have to worry about lions where I live, these kinds of things. Like we make certain templates that we refer to, to the point where even as I speak of in the class, we actually have to choose to restore our relationship with the rawness of reality and the amount of data that's really available energetically all the time because we become so accustomed to referring to our maps and living by our maps and living by cached memory of how things are. Even in our relationships, we refer to someone based on who they happen in the past rather than who's really present in front of me right now. So this goes on and on. And I think even about geographic maps, for instance, right? So we grew up as Americans seeing a certain map where we are right at the center. Of course, that's arbitrary. There's a bunch of different ways you could display the earth. It could be turned sideways. It could be flipped upside down. It doesn't make any difference in space. But we really have this felt sense that this is the way it really is. For instance, you and I probably grew up believing Greenland was massive because whenever you take a three-dimensional sphere and you try to collapse it into a two-dimensional frame, you lose information. You necessarily distort the information, which speaks to exactly what we're talking about. The chief problem with maps as opposed to the territory is while they are useful when we need them, when we do it as a default, we inevitably lose information. When you collapse from a higher dimensional object or experience to a lower dimensional frame, you will lose information. And then when you try to make sense of it according to the map, you inevitably will come to the wrong conclusion, an insufficient conclusion as a result. That's exactly the word I was going to use is collapse, right? We, we've collapsed this, uh, this information cloud into a, into a plane, into a point. That's what it is. It's not this, uh, you know, sort of cloud of possibility space. Uh, you know, and I found fascinating parallels with Raymond's experience and, and what we talked about earlier with when we were talking about Sean Kirkpatrick and what his office is trying to do. Uh, there was a point in the exchange with, with Raymond where, you know, I was trying to get him to think about, uh, you know, the fact that others have had a similar experience that that don't have a Christian framework that he has laid onto it, and 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 he's essentially defaulted back to the the comforting space of the Christian framework to inform his experience, rather than the experience informing the other way around. And it's exactly what we're doing with the scientific approach to to UAP is where we're saying, well, um, yeah, we're experiencing these weird things out there, these anomalous objects, but I'm going to resolve them from the the map, the ter- the, the, the playbook that I'm used to here, and and that's what it is. It's 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 only these things that are in my sort of scientific toolbox, and so 
you can you can see just obviously there that there's a tremendous uh, you know fallacy in taking that that approach, and that's why you know I admire the work of you know things like Jacques Vallée has tried to do by looking at experience and try, just looking at what it really was rather than kind of taking the interpretive layer and saying, well, that's it, right? And how often do we see this take place? I mean, it's, it's ufology is riddled with this, you know, sort of overlay of, of uh, you know, our interpretive grid onto the experiences that, that we have or the experiences that we hear, right? I mean, even just having a conversation with someone, I'm not necessarily having that exchange of information in that raw, you know, information cloud sort of way, I'm, I'm collapsing it into my, into my, into the symbology of language. It, it's, 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 there's a translation error, error constantly happening there. And so, you know, the, as, as my, my, my dad and uh, my grandfather used to say, you know, that there's something about uh, communicating that, you know, that we think that we, we think that we were communicating, but we're not really understanding. You know, so just because communication took place doesn't mean that we understood each other. So that, that that's where we are. It's a, it's a big challenge. And I think it's it, not just a challenge individually, right? It's something we all do. It's natural that we're going to do this, but it's a challenge on a societal level. And that's something that, that you and I have talked about that, you know, for this really going forward, how do we kind of orient ourselves or allow ourselves to, to break out of that, you know, hypnotic trance, if you will, of looking at, at at the things that we're seeing and hearing about and observing. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up Jacques Vallée because he's a really interesting case in point, really one of a kind in the UFO community, really. And that's why he's so well respected. People sometimes forget, we obviously weren't cognizant of that when it happened, but apparently in the 70s when he first coined these ideas, it was a stretch. Like he was rejected by all of these different groups because it just didn't fit in the boxes that had preexisted. But Valet has been equally critical of different groups. So he's as critical of ufologists as he is of scientists who just assume this can't be the case because it has not believed to be the case. So for instance, with the ufo ufological community, he pointed out that there was such an attachment to the extraterrestrial hypothesis that people didn't even want to hear about cases that stretched back to a certain period before Kenneth Arnold, for instance, that kind of thing. They would allow for cases up to, up until like 1945, but nowhere previous to that, because the attachment was to this notion that an extraterrestrial species had landed here, arrived here sometime around then, and everything since then is about that. And it gets slotted into our science fiction notions because that, again, is part of our collective memory, our collective imagination, the collective unconscious. So this translation that happens and the maps that form are an interesting combination between eras culture, history, collective unconscious, fiction, all of it comes in, in terms of how we make sense of it. But likewise, he was critical of those who just assumed that this stuff couldn't be real. For instance, when he was working in this astrological kind of community, when he first graduated, he was in Paris at Sorbonne, I think, and he noted that there were some anomalies on what they were tracking at night. And when he tried to bring it to the attention of his supervisor, he found out later that the supervisor just deleted those, not because necessarily it was some vast conspiracy to hide this from the public, but because it was inconvenient. It wasn't the mainstream view. And so he just said, eh, we don't really need to know about that, which goes to what I've said before about Rupert Sheldrake going to certain astrological observatories and saying, I notice here that you're not actually measuring for this constant anymore. And they say, well, because we know it's a constant, so why bother measure? 
And on top of that, sometimes we notice these anomalies, which is frustrating and inconvenient. So we just write it in as if it's assumed to be the case, which again is not scientific. It's not open-minded. It's not having that adventurous kind of open-endedness in terms of an attitude towards reality. Again, the degree to which we are attached to our maps, and even as Bernardo said, we quickly switch one map up for another. If we experience cognitive dissonance to the point where our previous map no longer suffices, rather than just saying, okay, what have we learned here? We've learned something about maps being insufficient. Let's change our orientation to maps versus territory. That's not what we usually do. What we do instead is say, quick, give me the new map. I can't handle this cloud of unknowing. That's a term in in Christian history for mystics is the cloud of unknowing. It's a beautiful expression. Mm-hmm. We need more of that. So that's what's really interesting about, about Valet is that he was equally critical of these different communities. And we still have the same thing going on today. One of the reasons why Valet is such an exception to the rule is because it's so difficult. It goes so against the grain to challenge conventions, to challenge maps in the sake of really trying to examine the territory. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, what what is it going to take, right, to sort of shake us out of this way of doing things? That uh, the mental image I have here is that uh, all of us are essentially hunched over the maps in this large room. We're all you know, fascinated by them. We're enthralled by the map that we've created of the world, and and we can't sort of see that there is a world out there. And uh, you know, we have someone. We really, what we need is someone to come into the room and slam something down on the map and say, "This is this is something I found out there." It's not on this. It's not on the map that you're looking at. And it, you know it, the, the realness of that, whatever it is, it will shake us out of our you know, fixation to, to want to go and see for ourselves. I must go in now and see for myself. Uh, I think that that's the point that we're, where we are, quite frankly. Uh, I think we, we need, uh, there's been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of, uh, of um, compelling information, testimony presented, but we need that moment where the irrefutable sort of evidence is slammed on the table to shake all of us out of our trance and want to go see it for ourselves to to then you know be emboldened to change the maps that we have created and rewrite entire new ones. And I, I, I think that's an important point to make, right? We're we're not going to just get rid of maps. I mean, that, that, we're always going to have maps. We're gonna we're just we're always hopefully we're creating new ones as we learn more and more about the world around us. Um, because we need the, those things to navigate the the, the, the strangeness in, in reality. I mean, there's just no way that we can, I think, uh, you know, be fully present to everything that's taking place. It's overwhelming, right? It's like it's the how, like the accounts in the Bible you know that you hear about where they they sort of have an encounter with God and it's just they can't even look at the divine because it would be too much to to take too much information to take in. You've recounted many of the same things that. Uh, these others have said, well, we don't really want to show our, our what we really look like to you because there's no way you'd be able to hand, handle it, right? So that that then means to me that part of the map that they're using is is a form that we're more comfortable seeing. Uh, so it, you know, it's stranger than we can imagine, right? Indeed, absolutely. That reminds me of something Bernardo said again in my conversation with him, is that a body is a symbol. Mm. And if your notion is one that steers towards idealism versus physicalism, then absolutely a body is just a symbol in a dreamscape, just like a dragon might be, or a book, or an open door. And so some of these might not have physical bodies at all, or that might not be their usual kind of expression, 
but they choose to take it as a form of communication in itself. That we need to think along those terms, not just, and this is again, something Belay really championed and he was really a pioneer in this. It's not just what they say. It's also how they say it, what the context is in which they say it, what do the craft look that they show up in. All of these things matter. Sometimes what we pay attention to in terms of the message might be less important than the symbols that are presented that go straight into our subconscious, right? We think about, again, the collective unconscious, the Jungian unconscious, archetypes, these notions that might be seeded into the bedrock of humanity, and they might be able to access that. I think it's almost guaranteed they can access that in the same way that Mike experienced these basically hive mind. And so they can speak directly to our unconscious in ways that we're not even cognizant of. That's happening too. That's another way I think that the control system works is they can speak words, but what we hear and what actually gets internalized in our deep unconscious, both individually and collective, is something else entirely. So this is worth thinking about. One last piece I'd love for us to get to, because I know you and I both agree on this, is the challenge that comes up when we think about how academia deals with these kinds of things. Because especially in the social sciences, which we would champion and say, absolutely, the social sciences should be part of this conversation. I hope they have people on the panel that happens next year that represent those different disciplines. But nevertheless, again, speaking of taming an untamed kind of reality, in the same way that in our religious circles, I remember people talking about basically, there was the period of inspiration where these things actually happened, where God came down and dwelt with people and people had these profound experiences. But then the Bible was the replacement. And from now on, we look to the Bible as our teacher. Of course, what's convenient about that is a Bible is not going to change on you. It's static. It's decided upon. It's the same things taught over and over and over again. It gets to the point where people even idolize the way that the certain words are used, certain metaphors are used. I know that I made this point to you and TJ when we were having pizza on the weekend, that in one of the Christian circles I was in, the Vineyard Church, began in Southern California. So when they did the laying on of hands, which is a biblical concept that goes back to the time of Christ or soon after, where people basically prayed while they touched people and there was a passing of energy. But because Southern California is pretty toasty a lot of the time, they would actually, in the vineyard church, put their hands like an inch away from someone's arm you know, or whatever, whatever part of their body they're touching, just because it's uncomfortable and everybody's touching you and it's like 85, 90 degrees out. So then where I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, there was vineyard churches up there, or it could be Alaska for that matter. And people would do this thinking that this was somehow some magic incantation that you can't actually touch. You just get like an inch away and then the magic really happens. Of course, it's really just pragmatic and practical. So it's those kinds of things that we have this rigid adherence to the map rather than really paying attention to the territory. So I absolutely agree with you that we do need maps. We can't do away with maps. There is too much data to make sense of without some sort of truncating into a certain kind of map. But we do so knowing that the maps are always insufficient, always incomplete, always to some degree collapsing a more complex reality into a, a tamer one, a safer one. But when it comes to social sciences, what that comes down to is, again, sometimes talking more about how this has impacted our society and impacted historical human societies rather than dealing with the fact that this is a real phenomenon happening in real time to real people, even as we speak. Amen. 100%. Uh, we've got to have experience. We've got to be present 
to experience. We can't collapse uh, those that we care about into, you know, sort of figurines, uh, into caricatures of who they are. Uh, we need to. We can't collapse the experiences that we hear about into caricatures of what what they are. We have to lean into that experience, be still with the energy that is there, and and that's uncomfortable. By the way, <laughs> I want to point that out. You know, someone who's trying to do that more often. And, and being present to this energetic uh, space that we all inhabit. You know, we, we all inhabit and move through a space of energy every single to every single day, uh, whether that's just getting up to go to your desk or, or having dinner with, with your friend. You know, you're, you're occupying space and energy with, 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 with everything around you. And to be present with that, to, to allow it to discomfort you, is really helping you to change your frame, and, and because because you, you're so stuck in the routine, you, you you cannot see it for for anything other than that that map that you've created in your mind. And if you just just throw it away and say, "Well, I'm going to be present to this. I'm going to feel into what 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 this is," in in the genuine, real sense, then you'll be surprised at all the information that that is available to you. I know you would agree with that. That that uh, there's so much information available to us. At every waking moment, we just filter most of it out, and uh, you know, I would I would hope that not only can we do that as individuals, we can find a way to do that as a society. We can find a way to do that w- with our institutions, and until we can learn how to do that, until we can find a way to 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 make that happen, we're going to be stuck. We're going to be stuck not understanding what this is. We're going to be constantly collapsing it and discarding it. And ignoring it and saying, you know what, that's not in our data set, so it doesn't exist. Absolutely. Here, here. And one of the things I plan to make part of the retreats that I will be hosting in 2024 is actual practices, techniques you can use to force people into raw experience that goes outside the map. So I actually started practicing this over the last few years with people I'm close to, where basically we learn these tricks to, on the spur of a moment, ask each other a very direct question that forces us out of the map and into the rawness of reality. And once you have that happen enough times, you begin to recognize how often you're living in cached memory and representation rather than the reality, those kinds of things. And in terms of us as a society, absolutely. And this goes to something that Bernardo said in my conversation with him, where he spoke about our need for closure, how we're more attached to our model being adequate than we are in actually having this adventurous, open-ended relationship with reality. That's what we're championing in here is, is more of the relationship with reality. Relationships are not static. They're changing. They're evolving. There's always a different person in front of us that's showing up day to day. We need to be aware of that, present to that with everything we encounter. That's the ultimate goal. Absolutely. Well, it's been a great uh, episode. I really enjoyed this conversation, Darren. I hope our listeners have as well. Uh, there's a lot of interesting interesting things that are absolutely going to be happening in the near future. Uh, more to talk about, uh, more to dig into. Um, I hope that folks have, have really taken to heart some of the things that we, we've stressed and try to put them into practice. It's very challenging and difficult, but uh, just, just start. All you got to do is try. Um, so we'll see you at the next episode. May the quality of our questions, shaped by a desire for understanding, enhance our journey of discovery, and may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, 
Adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.